today we get to follow up on last week's uplifting sermon on David and Bathsheba. I bet after last Sunday you were talking to your friends, hey, guess what we talked about in church this morning? Although I have to say, I felt a little better at staff meeting. We were discussing uh, various things, one of which is Joel Osteen, um, and MJ mentioned how Joel Osteen's sermons are, you know, focused on empowerment and full empowerment, and he, uh, he noted that here at FCC, uh, we seek to talk about real life, and we hope from those, reflection, that from those reflections, we actually seek a deeper empowerment, a more lasting empowerment than you might find at Lakewood. Uh, today, we return to our story of 2 Samuel, and we get to delve into the immediate fallout fallout of David's actions last week. More fun. Nothing but fun here. (laughs) I take from my text this morning the fifth verse of the twelfth chapter of 2 Samuel. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. There was Nathan on his knees in prayer. This was the moment of Nathan's life. Word had reached back to Jerusalem that Uriah had died. The circumstances of his death were clear to all. A pall hung over the city. Bathsheba was pregnant. Everyone knew what had happened. The enormity of David's crime shocked everyone. What to do? Word would soon filter back to David's army. Word that David, their king, had willingly sacrificed one of their best soldiers to cover up his adultery. David could abuse his power in that way. What would be next? Nathan Nathan was the most trusted prophet in David's court. The mantle fell to him. Someone had to confront David. The life and soul of the entire community depended upon it. But how to do it? If David would kill Uriah in his effort to cover up his crimes, who is to say that he would not do the same thing to Nathan or to anyone else who called David to account for his sin? For several days, Nathan couldn't sleep. What should he do? What could he do? The image of Uriah's face kept coming back to him. Nathan could no longer bear to look at Bathsheba when he saw her. Something had to be done. Nathan had to see David. But how? What was he going to say? It was the pivotal moment in Nathan's life. So he turned to God in prayer. By any estimation, Nathan's situation was extreme. Not every day do you have your life on the line when approaching a difficult conversation. Thankfully, I've never had to be in Nathan's situation, and I don't imagine I will. I have a hard time thinking that I, lo- that I might lose my life if I have a difficult conversation with any of you. <laughs> At least I hope I won't lose my life talking with any of you. Please don't get any ideas. <laughs> but when we think about it, we are all faced, at one time or another with the prospect of difficult conversations, times when we have to have that talk. As those conversations approach, they can eat us up from the inside out. We lose sleep over anticipation of them and down one tablet of Tums after another. Talking about? 
This upcoming week, I will travel to New Hampshire for the yearly gathering of my family in Lake Winnipesaukee. It's something that we're all looking forward to. A week of relaxing by the water and of great conversations. A week of spending time with my precious little nieces and nephew. I love seeing my nieces and nephew, and I only get to see them twice per year. And it's amazing to see how much they grow between spending time with them. My youngest niece, Avery, is now uh, over two and a half. She's about probably that big. And very much becoming her own person. Connor is four, and Ellie, his elder sister, is six. My brother-in-law and sister will be there, as will my mother. We're planning a few, we are already planning the fun things that we will do and dreaming about how much we're going to enjoy it. There's one part of the upcoming week that I'm not looking forward to. The inevitable political conversation with my aunt. Dreading it, actually. My aunt, Peace, and Uncle Gil are like second parents to me. My uncle is seven years younger than my mother, and they lived very close by growing up. We saw them at least once per week, and they and my parents decided to retire together to New Hampshire. A couple years ago, my aunt and uncle decided to move to the same community in Florida as my mother. Their sons are 10 and 13, youngers, 10 and 10 and 13 years younger than I am, and I watch them grow up every step of the way. As I have mentioned in the past, my family has always had lively political conversations around the dinner table. These conversations became particularly heated in 2012. We are very much a divided household politically. But something significant changed in 2016. Almost as a reflection of our nation more broadly, things became strained enough politically that we stopped talking about it altogether. Unheard of. We've also been spending less time with them. Last summer, during the entire week, I only saw my aunt and uncle once. Now, there are a lot of reasons to support the current administration, many of which I respect, even if I disagree with them. But my aunt and uncle's support, particularly my aunt's, represents, in my mind, the worst aspects of Donald Trump. I say this because of how much it pains me. My aunt's support for the current administration is explicitly rooted in racism and xenophobia. Explicitly. She doesn't make any apologies for that. It's also rooted in the reduction of their taxes. She does not care about what effect that might have in other areas of government. She is single-minded in her support. With most people, I can talk about a Christian perspective on politics. With others, I can appeal to what we think is best for the country as a whole, or how best to take care of everyone in our community in a way that reflects our common American ideals. Those arguments don't matter at all for my aunt, and it pains me. Here is someone I love dearly whose values somehow have drifted so far from my own. This week we will talk about things, and I dread what it will mean for the future of our relationship. How do I talk to her? I'm like Nathan looking to God in prayer before my confrontation with David. Difficult family conversations are a near universal experience. You drift away from your spouse. Your relationship begins to change. The intimacy becomes lost. You both feel it happening. Your busyness can sometimes distract you, as can raising children. And these things give you a reason not to confront hard truths. Sometimes difficult conversations simply have to happen. While you go over the conversations in your head, you tear yourself apart. What to say, how to start the conversation. Will things actually change? Perhaps you've tried to have conversations in the past and they've gone nowhere. Now what? See how the prophet Nathan must have felt. Night after night in prayer to do. 
how to talk about the difficult thing, the elephant in the room. This can be true with your children as well as your close friends. This past week, I read an interesting piece that one of you sent me that was written by a fellow minister. This minister had taken time to interview the older members of the church about each person's biggest regrets and what gave each person the most delight in life. What she found again and again was that the most painful life experiences were the fracturing of close relationships, particularly within families. Looking back on 90 years of life, that is what caused the most pain. What if there had been some way to communicate better? What if there had been a chance for true healing? Even have been possible? Not every communication challenge has to be so intense. There are divides that separate us in other ways, where truth needs to be communicated. I mean, Houston is obviously better than Dallas. Like, clearly. But when I run into someone from Dallas, how can I make them see the light? Or what happens when you meet a Yankees fan? We need help here. How do we communicate across religious lines? How do we tell our neighbor not to have loud music until 1 a.m. on a Saturday or convince him actually to mow his lawn or to take out the trash? The need for communication, sometimes difficult communication, is ever-present. Nathan felt it. We feel it. Nathan finally got his audience alone with King David. This was the moment for him. Nathan's palms were sweaty from anticipation. He swallowed but had no saliva in his mouth. He was ushered in. David stared at him as if to say, and? Nathan began to speak. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Nathan paused. He could see that David was listening intently to the story, curious to see where it would go. Nathan continued. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest who had come to him. Nathan could see the righteous indignation building up inside David. After a moment, the king exploded. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The decision was made. Here was a time when the king could rectify the situation. David looked around the room was about to call and, about, and was about to call for his aides to execute his wishes for justice. Just before David was about to speak again, Nathan interjected, You are the man. The words hung in the air, and Nathan let the full implication of the condemnation sink in. David was dumbstruck. A look of realization crept over his face. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, Nathan declared, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. When Nathan finished speaking, his eyes ablaze, he waited for David's response. Nathan had laid it out on the table. His fate was beyond his control. He peered into David's face and saw what he had hoped for. Contrition. 
David realized what he had done. In a voice that was barely audible, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. All I can say when reading this passage, which is over 2,500 years old, wow. What gumption, what courage does Nathan have? He fulfilled his calling to be a prophet. When the great moment came, he responded. He delivered the word of the Lord that needed to be said. Nathan's conscience could be at ease. Looking more closely at this passage, we can't help but wonder what made Nathan's effort so successful. He confronted the king with his most grievous sin and got the king to admit it and his own wrongdoing. Just wow. Like, this kind of thing never happens. When I confront someone, they usually don't say, you're right, John, you're totally right. (laughs) I mean, they should say that, but they don't. How is Nathan able to do it? Analyzing this text we find three strategies that Nathan used to communicate. Three strategies for having a hard conversation. Three strategies that we can use potentially in our own difficult conversations. The first thing Nathan did was he was able to identify the shared values between him and David. Nathan and David were very different people, but they shared certain things in common. They both were devoted followers of the Lord, the God of Israel. They both knew the Torah, the law, very well. They knew what God's justice looked like. God commands Israel to forgive debts every seven years, to leave behind food in the fields for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. Extended families have to be cared for in times of crisis. God favors the lowly and the poor. Nathan's story also touches on the instinct to care that is in each of us. The poor man loved and cared for his lamb. The lamb had great value to him and his family. For the rich man to take it away when he had so much already grates on our sense of what is right and what is wrong. These shared values gave Nathan's speech real power to persuade David. The second thing Nathan did was to rely on a story. Narrative has tremendous capacity to move people. We all have this experience. It's why novelists and playwrights have such power to change our views. When we hear a story well told, we find ourselves in the midst of that story. We identify with the characters. One of the classic means of conflict resolution is to rely on I statements. When we're at odds with someone, rather than fall into the accusatory you statements, we should tell our own story, our own perspective. Someone might be able to take issue with our arguments. It is much more difficult to argue with someone's personal experience. When something is put in the form of a story, it becomes personal, and therefore has a far greater capacity to persuade. The third key thing that Nathan does is that he allows David to come to the conclusion for himself before speaking. Nathan waits for David's own response to the story before he points out that he was actually talking about David. When David comes to his own conclusion, he owns its implications for himself. It becomes far harder to refute the power of Nathan's statement because David has already agreed to its basic premise. The rich man was wrong to take advantage of his power. David affirms that emotionally and with deep-seated anger. Having been so moved by injustice, David cannot backtrack when Nathan points out that the story was actually about David. Those three elements prove so successful here in 2 Samuel 12. First, identifying shared values with the person you're speaking with. What do you have in common? What motivates both of you that can form the basis for a conversation? 
Second, using the power of story and narrative rather than arguments to persuade. Third, allowing the other person to come to his or her own conclusions. Don't feed the conclusions to someone prematurely. Let the other person own it. Once that happens, it creates the possibility for someone to change his or her mind. Remarkable. Now, as someone who's a student of history, this technique reminds me of a famous story of Franklin Roosevelt. In 1941, Roosevelt faced a difficult political situation. The war in Europe was raging, and Roosevelt knew that U.S. interests lay with Great Britain. Britain, being an island nation, was at risk from the advancing Germans. The U.S. had to do something to help their allies, but what could Roosevelt do? The U.S. at the time was committed to isolationism. This was the high point of both the peace movement and the America First movement. Roosevelt and his advisors settled on a program called Lend-Lease. Under its terms, the U.S. would gain access to British military installations around the world in their former empire. In exchange, the U.S. would ship old destroyers to beef up the British Navy, particularly in light of the threat of German U-boats. To convince the American people, Roosevelt took to the airwaves to speak directly to the people. To defend Lend-Lease, Roosevelt relied on a story. He talked about if your neighbor's house was on fire and you had a hose, wouldn't you lend that neighbor your hose so that he could control his own fire? The story relied on the shared neighborly values of Americans. And that fireside chat single-handedly helped sway American public opinion in favor of Lend-Lease. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Your minister is a total dork. But this method... These three tips that we find in the story of Nathan and David can help us as well. This is not something that's locked in history. My aunt and I might differ on many things, but we do have shared values. We love our family. For my aunt, nothing matters more than her two boys. In fact, her love of them is the chief driving force of her politics. She sees the the political correctness of society as directly harming them. She and my uncle have sacrificed as much as they can to give their sons a leg up. She will do whatever she can to help them still. If I want to get anywhere with my aunt, I need to start with our mutual love of family. My aunt also lives in a bubble. She, like so many people and many of us, only interacts with people who are like her. The stories and experiences of people outside her circle she knows nothing about. She can understand parents wanting the best for her children. Telling stories of parents in very different circumstances might be a way to find shared ground. But she has to come to those conclusions on her own. What would it be like if her children were black instead of white? What if she could not afford health insurance for them? What if she didn't have the option to put her children through private schools? I want to know what she would do, not in an, anti- not in an antagonistic way, but in a sincere way, sincere way. I love my aunt desperately. I know there's a fraction in our relationship right now And I am determined to open up conversation with her to help change that. How about you? What are the conversations that you have to have? What are the ways that you can bridge the gaps and begin to heal relationships in your own home, in your workplace, or even here at church? How can you identify shared values? How can you rely on the power of story and your own personal testimony? Can you let the other person come to their own conclusions? and not try to shove your own views down their throat? No matter what, we are all in this together. We can't choose our families, but they are ours anyway.
We have shared experiences in this church, in this whole broader community. God calls on this to make a, God calls on us to make this our home, this and our home, truly hospitable. What kind of community do you want to live in? What relationships need to be repaired so that you don't have any regrets? How is God nudging you, disturbing you, as God disturbed Nathan and led him into that hard conversation? Perhaps you won't be able to solve all, all your relationship difficulties with the insights here of Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. But if we're going to be children of God, we have to at least try to speak the truth in love, even and especially when it's most difficult. Nathan did it.